We are live. Welcome to the Carl Vibe Show. Today I have a very special guest that I've been excited to talk to and finally got to meet in person after a long time coming, and that is uh, Dr. Uh, Don Jeffrey Meldrum, a prolific uh, researcher uh, in anthropology and in the specific topic of Bigfoot, where he's drawn a lot of attention, uh, specifically with his re- research and uh, specialization in uh, anthropology and locomotion, bipedal locomotion of uh, these uh interesting creatures. So without further ado, I would love to bring Dr. Meldrum in because I'm stumbling over my words already and he's an expert on the topic. And so let's let him go ahead and describe this. Uh, Dr. Meldrum, thanks so much for joining me tonight. Uh, It's been uh, such an honor to get to meet you at Phenomicon and have you come on the show tonight. So how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the opportunity to visit with me, get acquainted better. So Dr. Meldrum, the uh, topic of uh, Bigfoot isn't the whole story. You got involved in this because of your fascination and research and, and your education and everything. Maybe give us a little bit of a background to how you kind of got into the field and what has intrigued you with the topic. Well, sure. Well, I'm, I'm by profession an anatomist and anthropologist, physical anthropologist. Uh, that is, I, I teach uh, human gross anatomy in the health professions programs. Uh, it's a graduate level full dissection course for uh, graduate OT and PT students, PA students, nursing, radiographic sciences, uh, a lot of the allied health professions. And uh, I do research as a physical anthropologist on the evolutionary history of, of uh, the human adaptation to walking on two legs, as you described it, bipedalism. So I'm, uh, and under, under that umbrella, my, my interests have have uh, taken me to various analogs of both bipedal and quadrupedal movement in primates uh, in order to understand our own adaptation better. And so, uh, you know, since uh, my youth, when I was first exposed to the concept of Bigfoot, the, the notion that there could be this unknown or unrecognized better, unrecognized bipedal primate out there was always rattling around in the back of my brain. And what a fascinating opportunity for a student of, of the human, uh, the evolution of human bipedalism to have a, a living analog for comparison and contrast of our own adaptation, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let alone just the fascination of, of the topic uh, intrinsically it's of itself. Um, and so that's, but, but from a professional standpoint, that's the perspective I approached it with. And that is, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the evidence uh, associated with its bipedalism, and part and parcel of my my research has obviously been uh, looking at footprints, fossilized footprints, as evidence of that evolution of bipedalism in the hominid fossil record, and of course studying modern uh, human footprints as a, a means of comparison. And so, I was in a particular, you know, kind of a, 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 an exclusive club. There aren't very many members. It, the interest in the this subsequent generations of anthropologists has continued to grow in the field of, of uh, hominin bipedalism. And so there are more and more uh, people with those same interests and experiences now and, and uh, skill sets that far exceed my own in its modern technical uh, <clears throat> logical era. 
but uh, but I was in a position to to say something about these footprints that um, that hadn't been said yet or hadn't been considered yet. Dr. Krantz, I must acknowledge, you know, I was standing on uh, Dr. Krantz's shoulders, who likewise was a physical anthropologist with a uh, a, a lot of uh, knowledge of of anatomy, human anatomy. And he uh, also likewise focused as a result on the footprint evidence and had done a lot uh, of uh, very good work. Um, there were some things that I think I brought in a, a fresh perspective and allowed us to sort of uh, extend or expand the horizons of our consideration of, of the uh, interpretation of those footprints as the fossil or the, excuse me, as the footprint record continued to grow. I mean, that's one of the benefits of, of being able to say, you know, I have over 300 footprint casts and, and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, more photographs of, of footprints in the ground or casts that I have not had the opportunity to examine firsthand or to copy. When you have that kind of a data set, you know, patterns begin to be evident, quite evident. Mm-hmm. And you can recognize some, you know, some of the outliers and things that are transparently uh, uh, aberrant or anomalous uh, outliers, and and those are really few and far between. I mean, what 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 strikes me is the remarkable consistency. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, across uh, decades, if not century, well, not centuries, obviously, but decades of time and geography, um, uh, even spanning the globe, uh, examples of footprints that are are absolutely equivalent from China, uh, associated with the Chinese Yaren. I mean, that really mm-hmm. uh, drove a nail in the in the lid of this uh, this subject in, in in my mind. I guess that's the wrong analogy. That that alludes to the death of the of the idea. <laughs> it was a, a a bolster, a prop, I guess, a, another uh, uh, arrow in the quiver. Because here were these footprints from China that were just absolutely consistent. I mean, down to showing the mid-tarsal pressure ridge, this critical expression of the uh, model of the Sasquatch foot that I've proposed. Even consistent with, with, the, with, the, with the North American, North American, American tracks that we've seen, seen and everything. I'm getting I'm a little getting bit of an echo. Do you happen to have some headphones? You know, I, I, I maybe I, turn I, the volume down, down on your, your computer yes. just a little bit. Yes, let me do that. No problem. But yeah, I find that fascinating while you're working on that, that the uh, that there's not more people interested in specializing in the topic, because you would think that with even in the subject of anthropology, that the bipedalism throughout history and our uh, our own human history is such a critical lack for not pun, pun not intended, a critical step in our human history yeah. uh, to suddenly go upright. And maybe you can speak to that as to why bipedalism is such a phenomenon and why that is so rare even now to find tracks in the wild that seem to be bipedal, why right. that is such a big deal. Well, there's there's been a lot of, uh, of discussion and debate about uh, what was the impetus and and the, the uh, sequence of events that led to the evolution of hominin bipedalism. And um, for the longest time, it has been considered a, a, a particular adaptation of the hominin radiation. That was the adaptation that that set us apart from those 
uh, species that gave rise to the extant, the living great apes. Mm. Uh, that position is is not as uh, ironclad and and uh, uh, you know defend unassailable as as it was considered in the past because more and more first we blurred the line was some somewhat blurred by the um, recognition of Ardipithecus, a particular mm -hmm. genus, as a hominin ancestor and and attributing it with the habit of bipedalism when it had a foot that looked like a modern chimpanzee, essentially. With and the one toe portions, Right, with the divergent the big toe. Okay. Um, very thumb-like. I use my hand as a as an analogy there because of the remarkable thumb-like nature of that divergent grasping big toe and other aspects, uh, limb proportions. I mean, this, you stand up the reconstruction. Ray Matternus is a forensic anthropologist, that, uh, anthropological artist that did a, uh, you know, the National Geographic reconstruction of, of Ardipithecus. And uh, you put it up in one, one of my slides. I have it juxtaposed beside uh, an upright standing bonobo or, or a pygmy chimp. And they're, they're, they're virtually indistinguishable. I mean, there's differences in the, mm. in the details of some of the joints and in, in the cranial anatomy, um, slight differences. But in a, and, and so that kind of blurred that boundary. I mean, if we're calling this a hominin, and it clearly is not fully committed to bipedalism. It's a, at best a facultative biped. That is, it's capable of standing upright and walking, but it doesn't do it all the time. And it, it and unlike us, where we find it very difficult to go down on all fours, mm. um, we're obligate bipeds. Um, it's not. And so, is bipedal? If it's a hominin, is bipedalism the uh, litmus test for membership in that group, that clade? Mm. Now there have been other discoveries of other Miocene apes, like. Um, Denuvius was uh, was one that was recently described, which uh, its pelvis and, and limbs uh, suggested a very upright uh, posture. But all the arboreal, long curved digits, um, divergent big toe and a grasping foot, all adaptations mm -hmm. for climbing in trees. And yet it it had these uh, these morphologies that were um, uh, seemed to be anticipating, if not part and parcel with uh, the habit of standing upright. Um, so, you know, was it coming to the ground? Was it just um, foraging in an upright posture in the trees or what? And so that, this has always been a little bit of a, even when I was a graduate student, one of my professors had, had uh, uh, advocated early on that our upright posture uh, probably evolved in the trees as opposed to on the ground. Seems counterintuitive, but it's that upright orientation of the trunk in animals that do a lot of vertical climbing or that hang yeah, from yeah. Uh, below the branches that have lost their tail and have incorporated that musculature into a pelvic diaphragm to help support the abdominal viscera in that upright posture where they're sagging down into the pelvis instead of hanging beneath a suspension bridge like uh, uh, the spine so anyway the point simply being as a long technical um diatribe there but it but it just uh 
this is why it's such a fascinating topic. There is no clean cut answer right now. And we yeah. keep on discovering new fossils that shed new perspectives, new insights, provide new insights into the way in which bipedalism may have evolved and perhaps more than once. Perhaps there was just right. this propensity and, and it popped up. You know, it may be that Bigfoot doesn't share real recent ancestry with us, hmm. uh, but rather it has evolved um, to uh, walk on two legs in a convergent fashion from a more distantly related ancestor, but one that was equipped with some of the same characteristics and found itself in the same types of environments right. that, uh, that our ancestors did. That, that has yet to be determined. I mean, it kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting and fascinating to talk about the possibilities to frame, frame those possibilities within the context of what we know and what we suspect. Yeah. But ultimately, it's going to require uh, examining a specimen uh, to get right. to the bottom of those questions. So, Right. It seems like there it sounds like there's a lot of these transitionary fossil records that are coming forward that seem sort of like a mishmash of in between almost like uh, right. and it's hard to tell then you're like you're saying, are these uh, hominid creatures? Are they coming down from the trees? And or is it, you know, I always imagine that it was something to do with leaving the forest line into like grasslands and the need to suddenly yeah. see above see above the tall right. grass of the plainlands or something like that forces something that's normally down on all fours to suddenly need to look up around a lot. Yes. And then you get this kind of adaptation going on over generations of trying to see above while you're moving. There, so there's a whole litany of, of uh, kind of just so stories you could almost yeah. label them as that's one of them seen up over the grass, uh, uh, striking out into the open Savannah, perhaps to, to uh, 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 scavenge yeah. uh, carcasses of where all the big games are concentrated out there. Uh, that's one. Uh, thermal regulation, when you're out there in the open, not in the shade, the cool shade of the closed canopy of the forest, then uh, and, and you're very active, then heat dissipation is a, is a real issue. And so one of the thoughts is that the upright posture exposes less surface area to the sun. We've kind of, we've lost our, this is another possible explanation for losing our covering of thicker hair is yeah. that it provides more surface area for much more numerous sweat glands. We sweat more than any other primate. Hmm. Um, that watery uh, sweat is responsible for evaporative cooling, especially our head. And, uh, you know, but the top of our head, for the most part, most of us, some of us start to have to <laughs> cover the bald spot there, but our head remains rather protected. The one horizontal surface that's exposed uh, to the sun to a much greater degree with a, a, you know, covering of thicker hair. So there's a whole, a whole carrying things is another important element. Right. Carrying resources back to a home base or back to a mate, you know, who's, who's uh, um, uh, stuck at home with the kids, so to speak. You know, yeah. so, the male goes out foraging and has to bring provisions back. And so, so possibly even the development of subtle social structures of having to play a role suddenly right. forces a species yeah. to have to stand. It almost speaks of volumes to kind of the anomaly of what it is to be a human and the way that we are and how fascinating that is because you compare Absolutely. us to anything else on the planet, 
and we really don't quite fit, do we? It's uh, a little bit strange. We we are a bit, yeah. You know, uh, there there is there's no question that we're that we are another species of of primate, but but yes, our our intelligence, and then of course with that, our culture has catapulted us into a whole different set of uh, of circumstances, as, as uh, you know, is evident on the news every every night and every morning. Yeah. Um, you're you're absolutely right. I mean. I try to stress to my students that we are biological organisms and we like to think of ourselves as apart from nature instead of a part of nature. Yeah. But yeah. yet our, uh, you know, our, uh, um, our circumstances are quite different. We, we have that legacy, but then superimposed on that is, are, are the veneers of intelligence and culture and so forth. So social behaviors. That's true. So it makes Bigfoot and the topic of the Sasquatch really fascinating because where does it fall in that category, in your opinion? Does it fall into the animal kingdom or does it begin to fall into sort of a hominid or sort of human sort of uh, right. indigenous well, species of sorts? Yeah. And I'm glad you you, you uh, uh, elaborated there with some uh, some sort of intermediate alternatives because so often people take a question like that and it's black or white it's either human or it's ape you know they they make this contrived dichotomy and they don't recognize the um the spectrum the kind of continuum differences of degree rather than differences of kind even as we consider the known great apes as compared and other primates as compared to other mammals i mean they we are within an order that uh, has a much higher degree of, of encephalization. I mean, unless you turn to the oceans and look at uh, at uh, the cetaceans, and you know, for the longest yeah. time, the cetaceans, the porpoises, dolphins, and whales, they were the the brains on the block. And uh, up until you know, um, uh, early Homo, about two million years ago, were the first uh, to surpass the cetaceans in encephalization quotient the relative size of the brain the brain relative to the body mass right and so um you know i when i look at sasquatch one of the things that strikes me though is well first that that it is a biological species i mean i i think it's well adapted you don't have to appeal to some extraordinary explanation you know stepping through an interdimensional portal or time travel or you know space travel or whatever i mean they they look as at home in where they're at as the mountain gorillas do on the tops of the varungas in uh in east africa Mm. um and 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 with that in mind when you look there just are none of the trappings of what we associate with with humans even even the most quote stone age uh, populations that uh, have uh, avoided uh, contact with civilization our civilization right. our idea of civilization um, still they have stuff they have material culture they have stone tools they have clothing they have um, you know adornments they have uh, structures to live in to protect them and store things and so forth and sasquatch don't i mean there's there's no evidence of that anyway 
Right. There's no evidence of that, despite claims like glyphs and structures and tree structures and various things like that. I mean, uh, people who, uh, with, with all due respect, people who say they are forest people in, in the sense that we are people, as opposed to any other, you know, a generic use of that term to, to uh, open our arms to all of the, all of all living things. <laughs> um they are not people. They are primates, yes, but they show nothing uh, of uh, of what we associate with with people. Yeah. Now, you know, I mean, I've I've had the luxury, the the privilege of spending time up close with non-human primates, with orangs and chimpanzees and spider monkeys, even and gibbons, and uh, you know, it's it's an experience. I mean. Not not to diminish the intelligence and the the level of interaction that I have with my own, say, pet dogs. It's a different interaction with a, a primate. Hmm. And, um, you know, uh, people who don't appreciate that don't recognize the corollaries between what we see in the anatomy and behaviors of Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and and other great apes the person who who really was on the for the cutting edge of this you know beat me to the punch was dr john bindernagel and mm. his his first book north america's great ape the sasquatch the approach he took was he he was a professional wildlife biologist and he navigated even though primates were not his specialty he navigated that uh, literature in a very scholarly fashion very uh, adroit fashion and so he laid out uh, the parallels there mm. and, and example after example of, of uh, where eyewitnesses had the, uh, you know, the composure, the, uh, the presence of mind to uh, take note of details of anatomy and or behavior. You know, he could show he, or he laid out uh, in the literature descriptions of those anatomies and behaviors in very similar fashion in uh, the living great apes. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's hard. You just, <clears throat> I don't think anyone, anyone rationally can dismiss that yeah. emotionally. You can, you can grab onto a belief system that, that, uh, or, or some subjective experience that you interpret in such a way that you think that provides uh, justification for, um, adopting a different point of view. Um, right. But it's that. I mean, it's limited to that. It's limited to an opinion. And that's yeah. an opinion is very different than a data-based conclusion. <laughs> there are a lot of opinions that revolve around it and a lot of conspiracies around this topic too. Yeah. One of the ones that ties into what we're just talking about here is this idea that like why would the National Park Service or the government keep the secret if they knew? And and, and you know, it goes back to that argument of like, if these were an, like an indigenous species of some kind, people are afraid that it would carve out their hunting grounds or somehow they would yep. suddenly shift the designation to the land and, right. and the land usage. And suddenly America would be completely redefined to accommodate this new species if it was yeah. acknowledged. And so they would rather put it in sort of a blind spot or keep it a secret. What are your thoughts to that? Well, I, you know, I think that's a very uh, uh, realistic uh, possibility. Possibility. I don't know how probable 
from again i can only uh speculate uh, beyond my own personal experience and my own experiences have pointed to or have have been at the sort of uh, mid management level and at that level district rangers or supervisors administrators of uh of parks or of uh, national forest or U.S. Fish and Game District offices and so forth, and I've we, we've spent Doctor or not Doctor, but uh, John uh, Mianzinski, uh, a colleague that I've spent a lot of time in the field with, um, and he and I actually went around through Western Wyoming and visited a whole string of these offices, hmm. and uh, and had conversations with the the personnel, the staff there, and, and provided information. You know, I, I uh, gifted copies of my book to their offices and our field guides and our uh, some of our uh, papers that have been published. We, we shared um, summary maps of the region where um, incidents had been logged and so forth. But the point being is that there was no evidence of any kind of conspiratorial suppression of information, but rather... Um, occasionally there were individual personalities who felt that it was an embarrassment to their their reputation, potentially, their credibility, mm. or they were very sensitive about the perception, the public perception. Uh, again, it's a question of credibility. The public perception of, of the use of public funds. And, uh, uh, uh. and so they put the kibosh on any kind of active, proactive research uh, for that reason. But right. no evidence of, of anything from on high. Well, here's just one case in point. John was having a conversation. He, he has done a lot of work in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Um, he works uh, of late or had been of late working with the bighorn sheep in the, in the Wind River Range, but he was involved with one of the um, extensive uh, grizzly bear studies in the greater Yellowstone. And so interacted with a lot of these wildlife biologists and agency personnel, well known by them and so forth. And, uh, and so was privy to their uh, reports, their, their sightings. And uh, he had the opportunity to visit with uh, the director of public relations at the at Yellowstone National Park on a different topic. But as he always does, very deftly, he can turn the conversation to Sasquatch and, and get some information, <laughs> right. bring it up. And, uh, uh, and, and so he did. And uh, the woman said, oh, that's fascinating. You know, we don't have any stories like that from the park. And he said, oh, as a matter of fact, you do. She said, really? And she says, well, why have I never heard of them? He, he said, because you're uh, the... Uh, the, your staff are not comfortable. They don't feel confident to report it up the chain of command for fear of retribution or stigmatizing them. And, yeah. and she said, oh, I'll have to look into that, <laughs> you know? I mean, so she was just absolutely oblivious to, to the fact that, that quite a few. Now, there's been a couple of rangers. I can't, uh, his name escapes me now. I knew uh, I wouldn't be able to think of his name, but uh, a very famous ranger from Yellowstone who retired, and he, and he published his memoirs. And in there, he actually includes a couple of reports uh, yeah. some that he was directly involved with and others that uh, came to his attention that had occurred within the park i've had experiences where 
that was two retired police officers and they were um, uh, detectives, detective mm. level officers, um, crime scene investigation and, and uh, forensic uh, you know, investigation and so forth. But they had a, a, an encounter, a sighting in, uh, in the western part of Yellowstone, just west of, uh, of uh, Old Faithful. And, uh, uh, you know, they, they knew about me, so they, they brought it to my attention. We had the opportunity to go up and sort of examine the scene where they had uh, pulled off in a turnabout. And when uh, uh, they opened the doors to get out to stretch, and he noticed this figure walking. It was walking in the shadow, walking along the tree line in the shadow that the trees were cast. So it was uh, kind of hiding itself. And uh, someone on the other side of the car door who hadn't seen it, or car rather, who hadn't seen it yet, slammed their door shut. And at that point, it stopped dead in its tracks. Yeah, and just turned and stepped into the trees out of sight. But, you know, we sat and recreated it and and measured off the distance. And, you know, it was about 80 feet was all that when it when it finally turned. Yeah. And he was so he was able to see it quite well. And uh, uh yeah, so it, it happens. I mean, you yeah. know, that's the thing. You, we can sit here and, and talk about these individual experiences when you, it's one thing to be an armchair skeptic and just, ah, yes. you know, uh, offhandedly dismiss these things. Oh, they just saw a bear. It was, it, you, know, you know, it was something else. Um, they imagined something. But when you actually visit firsthand, face to face, especially when you can have that person at the scene, yeah, and yeah. Uh, reliving the experience and see their body language, see their reaction. Um, it uh, it's not so easy to you know these these are trained observers. These are objective, critical investigators, and uh, and and that's the case over and over again when you have uh, you know the the quality and skill set, the experience, the um, uh, maturity, you know. Uh, of the eyewitness certainly comes into play. Not not all sighting is sightings are equal, right? Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, there there are a lot that it's. Uh, and it's this is not. this is the thing that I, I want people to understand that that come across this video or listen to this podcast is that like it's so fascinating to me. You're talking about Yellowstone, and one time years ago, I got really curious and I did the math. I looked up the national numbers and I thought I wanted to see exactly how many people in an entire year go and visit national park lands, you know, and right. go pay for the ticket and go to the national park. So I got that total number. And then I thought, okay, let's say if all of those people over the course of an entire year, if they all went on the same day and they went and they spread out to all the national parks equidistant. So every visitor stood equally separate from each other to spread the nation and try to look for Bigfoot. Yeah. And, and still, even if they were able to do that, as hostile as some of those territories would be to even try to do that, each individual person would have to look and cover three and a half acres of wilderness by themselves to try and find something. Yeah. And so even if it was yeah. that impossible. And so when you when you mention these arms armchair skeptics, all anybody has to do is like go up to one of these spots where like a sighting occurred and walk around a little bit. And honestly, yeah. like it really instantly impresses on you, like, okay, 
20 feet over there off the trail behind some of those trees, anything that grew up or lived its entire life generationally in this environment where its entire means of survival was to hide and crawl around and be stealthy and avoid detection. Like you would never, ever find it. You would never, ever see anything like that. Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, their, 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 their appearance is the perfect camouflage, the perfect ghillie suit. Yeah, I, I saw there was a, a TV show. What was it? Jag or something. But they had a scene where the, the chopper comes down and out jumped the two snipers in their ghillie suits. Right. And as they were hunched forward and running, it just struck me, man, that looks like I can imagine that would be what a Bigfoot would be like. But but your point's well taken. If they just stand still, even in plain sight or just lay down, you actually noticing them. You know, uh, because our our vision is so keyed to motion, um, sometimes you know we can not see anything at all until it moves. But yeah, it's uh, yeah. And when you think about even like a trained sniper or a Navy SEAL or something like that, who's trained and trained, uh, they might have a decade of training. Where you're talking about uh, a hominid living up in the wild, its entire life multiple generations its entire way of eating and living and survival which is is way above even a trained sniper in order to be able to avoid detection so it blows my mind that people can't even fathom the possibility and then when you also think of really rationally or even try to attempt to go fake a realistic track and how impossible it would be for hoaxers to keep up with the amount of evidence that actually is come across and found every year. It blows right. my mind that there's people just don't think about it rationally. It's immediately dismissed. So, yeah. well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there, an example of that was some years ago, there was uh, <clears throat> we were invited by, uh, it was Richard Greenwell and I were invited by BBC wildlife mm-hmm. to write an article, to submit an article about Bigfoot. And uh, they seemed to be very supportive and everything, but they sat on it and they sat on it and they sat on it. Well, finally they, they, I, we've, we've discovered why they were waiting for there was a, a, a BBC producer, uh, film producer by the name of Chris Packham, a young up, upstart producer who to make a name for himself. He set out to debunk the Patterson Gimlin film. Yeah. And uh, and so they put his article side by side with ours. It became kind of a, you know, he said, she said. But but he made this. I, I watched an inter- interview with him as well, and he repeated this. But in the article, he says, you know, of course, um, America is a, a large and vast country, but but he qualifies it. But everyone knows there's not one square inch that hasn't been. These were his words: trammeled by backpackers and hunters and miners and prospectors and loggers. And, you know, I felt like saying to him, never had the opportunity, really, but, uh, hey, Chris, come on over here. Let me take you out and drop you off somewhere. You know, put a blindfold on you, drop you off somewhere, and we'll just see how fast you're trammeled by all this human traffic you envision out here. You know, yeah. they, they, it just, it just um, uh, uh, emphasized that there are people who haven't a clue. They yeah. have no sense of scale. They have no sense of the remoteness. They have no sense, historical sense of the fact that that today, um, as compared to, say, just 50 years ago, there are actually fewer people living in the backcountry 
they're more in the in the urban urbanized settings hunters yeah. um uh, unless they can get there on an atv don't go back off road very far very you know there are some intrepid ones who do but it's uh more and more i mean I, i've talked to someone one day, one day we bumped into a guy who was a professional outfitter and what was he doing he was mending fences and uh, you know he said he said, yeah, I'd much rather be out doing what I, I normally do professionally. He said, but there's no business. No one wants to go back. No one wants to pack back into the wilderness. They all do it from their ATVs. He said, my business has just dried up in the past decade. So he's uh, resorted to mending fences. Now. So it's possible but, uh, that even those deep country locations where these things could live might even be more open to them to move than and then of late. So I, that's so fascinating. And, right. and inter, I even read a thing that in Yellowstone alone, that just in the last like two years, they decided to uh, survey the riverways. Uh, and because of drone technology, they were able to fly drones up these rivers that there are really difficult to get through. So right. this claim of like every square inch has been hiked or backpacked is oh. ridiculous because with just this little survey, they discovered like over 300 waterfalls that, nev- that had never been mapped before, you know, yeah. like, and these are waterfalls on the rivers. And so, yeah, some, and, and waterfalls aren't going anywhere. It's not like they're right. moving or migrating or hiding in caves or anything or, or nocturnal. Uh, so, I mean, maybe Dr. Meldrum, you can talk about that a little bit. What is some of the evidence, like when you first started investigating this stuff, that really is convincing to you, like when it comes to the footprints and just like, uh, what is it that really is like, okay, this is credible and this is something to take yeah. out of that, that people should look for? Well, uh, obviously the the thing that really um, uh, piqued my interest as, as a youngster and, uh, and, and it wasn't just a naive uh, interest. I mean, I, at that age, uh, I was, I was 11, but, but I, you know, was a voracious reader. My parents were very supportive, you know, of my interests. And this was obviously before the internet and everything. And so I had uh, the uh, International Wildlife Encyclopedia set, and I would read those from cover to cover, you know. And and uh, anyway, uh, my first exposure to, to the topic of Bigfoot was uh, the Patterson-Gimlin film. And, uh, you know, that, that was just emblazoned it, and I was struck by what I saw. Um, it was just so natural. I mean, it didn't strike me as a monster movie as some sensation, uh, in, I mean, in and of itself, a sensational, uh, contrivance. It was, I mean, it, it I was looking at a creature walking in its habitat, basically, is what it. Do, do you it still have that me. opinion to this day, even after all of your years of experience and profession? Even, that even the, more so. I mean, yeah. even more so. That that sort of set the base, the foundation. And then I always, you know, uh, when I when I did kind of the times that the interest um, uh, uh, peaked and waxed and waned, you know, through the years before my professional involvement, hmm. um, I was kind of always kept that a bit uh at arm's length because i didn't i felt like we shouldn't put all our eggs in that basket because then if it should be ever be exposed as a hoax your whole facade your whole or your whole edifice doesn't collapse right um i think that was unnecessary now because you know eventually 
when I had the opportunity to examine some uh, some more recent footage, some video footage, and then was exposed to footprints in the field and really started immersing myself in the in the footprint record seriously. Um, you know, even at first, I was always, you know, the Patterson-Gimlin film, it was there, but let's not overdo it, you know, let's not, that's not the holy grail. N now, I think it, it serves that, that purpose very well. I'm as convinced as I can be, short of having stood there on the sandbar on that afternoon, that it's the real deal. And I've looked at it every which way, and I've worked together and consulted with uh, very uh, knowledgeable people like Bill Munns and uh, more recently um, a, a young computer scientist Isaac Tian who's done some great uh, um, uh, uh, treatments of the of the archive of uh, copies of the film that uh, the bill uh, with with a, a mile minor contributions from me uh, as well as some financial support through some grants I was able to get to support Bill's research uh, has accumulated. I mean, that's an extremely valuable um, archive of, of images with, uh, you know, probably in, in some instances, as many as a dozen uh, copies of the film of various generation, which allows you when you, you know, if there's a particular feature on uh, a particular frame, but you're not certain if what you're looking at is an artifact of the copy process or you're maybe misinterpreting something when you can look at 12 versions of that. And if, if it's uh, consistent, then right. it, it probably is a real feature and not some artifact. You can actually uh, see if it's musculature flexing in right. the calf instead exactly. of some, like a fleck of dust on the lens or something exactly. like that. Yeah. Okay. And then Isaac's technique of uh, superimposition he, he writes computer algorithms that allow you to uh, perfectly line up these frames based on, on uh, well-established landmarks. And when you superimpose all of those, it nullifies the grain artifacts. Some of your listeners may no, not know what I'm talking about here when it comes to grain, film grain. But prior to the digital age where we have individual pixels, individual quanta of data that remain consistent from copy to copy, um, you know, file copy to file copy, uh, when you transferred an image from a film emulsion that had halide crystals, silver crystals that would react to the light, um, each copy, each uh, new film had a slightly different texture of crystals. And so it can distort or change or blur an edge um, with with each copy or with a with subsequent copy. And of course, the right. details break down with each additional iteration. But when you summate that information back, it reinforces the consistent message and, and diminishes the anomalous features. And so what jumps out at you is, is much clearer reduces the scratches and flecks and dust and so forth and artifacts like the famous little circle that people have interpreted as the okay sign by the hand of, of right. Patty, which yeah. is nothing but an artifact of the copying of blemish. Oh, on really? It. It's just a, the hand is. No, just the hand, is, you, you can only see the back of the hand. There's, there's no fingers that palm doesn't. This is what's so funny. 
you know, it, it makes it look See, like that's stuck in the, Mike, that's stuck in the cult. like an Egyptian, yeah. you know, with the, with, yeah. the, with the backhand turned way back like this. Right. And, and here's, here's a real giveaway for why um, I, I'm absolutely certain that Bob Hieronymus is just full of it. Yeah. is when he tries to, quote, imitate the walk, or or when he walks in order to show that his walk is like Patty's, what does he do? He turns his hand around in a very unnatural direction, so the palm's facing backward, curls his fingers, and yeah. he, he walks like like so, that. Well, see, he's yeah, trying they, to imitate what he's seen on the film, on, on the version of the film that he's familiar with. Which, in the end, kind of is a giveaway, because the fact that he's trying to emulate with his hand something right. that the video evidence ultimately reveals was just an artifact of yep. film grain, then he is trying to cup his hand based on something that never happened in the video. That's right. He's Absolutely trying to imitate right. something based off of an artifact. So yep. he wa- he probably was not in a suit out there. Oh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm yeah, certain. I'm certain not, that's the case. But, not, but yeah, it's, it's a dead giveaway. Faking so the, tra- right, the um, tracks and everything out there that were cast and everything is another well, thing right. too. Yeah. And, and yeah, and I've said repeatedly, if, if all I had to go on were the casts, were the footprints of, from the site, it would be extremely compelling because, I mean, it has that remarkable example of the mid-tarsal pressure ridge, not only the one that where it's extremely distinct, but um, uh, Bob Titmus cast 10 in succession and subsequently in the film itself, um, uh, images have been identified in back in the herky-jerky beginning frames that show where the creature walked up onto the sandbar and the footprints are quite distinct. And, and, and there are several that have every bit as dramatic a pressure ridge. But I, we did three-dimensional uh, scans of, all, of those 10 casts done by, uh, by Bob Titmus. And when you examine them... Um, and, I, and I've examined the casts firsthand and, and confirmed this obviously as well, but, but for other people to see, people have asked, well, if this is a real feature, if, if Meldrum's interpretation is, of the foot is accurate, why don't the other footprints show any evidence of that? Well, all you have to do is turn them so you're looking at them sideways and boom, there's the pressure ridge in, uh-huh. in nine of the 10 casts. I mean, you don't expect to find them in every single one, Roger looked for the cleanest, flattest, crispest uh, examples that he could uh, uh, cast. And, uh, and so as a result, they looked remarkably flat. And so much so that the experts at the time basically say, well, these look, these look artificial. They look like they were carved out of a wooden plank, basically, which was the fallback position. Right. But the others show remarkable dynamics. And then <laughs> on top of that, well... I made uh, allusion to um, the, the Chinese footprints. That that was the real giveaway because uh, it was so funny. I uh, uh, and I've told this story, and so bear with me if you know you listeners have heard it. But when we were there in China and we were going to do an interview with a witness who had a, a pair of casts that he had made, and. Uh, they wouldn't let me look at it until we had the interview set up so they could capture my initial reaction and comments on film. And so we were driving out to a location where they wanted to sort of the, uh, orchestrate, uh, you know, cast a, a, a series of uh, interviews. 
And on the way, I had given Mr. Yuan, the witness, a copy of a, uh, an article I had written, a paper I'd published, which had a, a very nice uh, figure, a photographic figure showing three-dimensional scans Mm -hmm. of this titmus cast with the distinctive pressure ridge showing it at various angles so you could really appreciate the topography mm -hmm. and he couldn't understand the english he couldn't read it but boy he saw that image and oh he got excited oh look at you know and i said okay yeah yeah we'll we'll sure enough we get to the location get set up get the cameras rolling he opens up his little suitcase and out come these two casts and they're dead ringers for that cast that he got so excited about i mean Every yeah. proportion and detail, and uh, I, it, I was just floored. You know, I mean, here's how how could he possibly? Why, even if he had some access to an image like that which I showed him yeah. previously, why would he think to imitate that? Why would he presume to? And then get the perfect bilateral symmetry, you know, on the two opposite feet with exactly the same proportions and because so many yeah. people I've, I've had so many people not so I, not that many there have been times when people have tried to doctor uh, a, a would-be footprint real yeah, or, yeah. or not by in adding this feature and of course they get it all wrong they don't know the anatomy they don't know the positions of the joints the relative proportions and so forth yeah but then i was going to add I subsequently had the chance to look at the famous Jerry Crew cast from 1958, that first cast essentially in the, in the United States anyway, that, that made the headlines. And uh, unfortunately, when, when the, that newsprint uh, photo was shot, he used a very strong flash. You can see the real heavy shadow behind Jerry on the wall. And that, you know, when you, flash that much i mean it's a great photo but it it really flattens the, the, the features yeah and yeah. um uh so subsequently i had a chance to visit with jerry cruz's son who is the custodian of that original cast and he had it in a wired in this nice shadow box and a, you know the image from the newspaper clipping and so forth there and he was kind enough to un twist the wires and allow me to take the cast out and examine and photograph it. Well, now it had been subsequently cleaned a little bit better too. The toes were more distinct. A lot of the matrix had been, the, the soil had been cleaned away. But boy, all of a sudden you look at it in, in a, a side light, there's a pressure ridge in exactly the right position, in exactly the right, excuse me, orientation. Which is something that they wouldn't have known because they're not an no. anthropologist specializing in bipedal locomotion. Even the, <laughs> even the anthropologist of that of that day right. would would probably not see. I I have uh, I mean, there's a few a few anthropologists out there who are familiar with uh, with Hickman's papers and his description of the mid tarsal break. Uh, it was a, just an observation that was made back in the I think it was the 30s. Um, where he was describing the movements, the kinematics of a chimpanzee walking quadrupedally and bipedally. And he noted this greater degree of flexibility through the instep. Right. And that drew attention to this, and he referred to it as the mid-tarsal break. It's uh, not as evident. The gorillas have a stiffer foot. They're, they're, because of their size, their, their foot uh, just doesn't have the same degree of flexibility, although... Uh, they don't have a fixed longitudinal arch. 
but in other other primates there's a considerable range of motion there and um, anyway uh, e even now I, I still have trouble with some of my colleagues um, uh, accepting the uh, the correlation of of that description that kinematic with what is evident on the Sasquatch foot. But see, you can watch the Patterson Gimlin film and see you it. can, yes, you can see the action of the foot. We yeah. have not only the footprint record and my interpretation based on the, uh, in, you know, inferences about the dynamic and the, and the uh, artifacts that are a result of, uh, as a result of that dynamic interaction of the foot with the substrate, but we can watch the track maker laying down those prints. We can right. see the heel elevate and flex across the instep. We can see the recoil as the foot swings and the, and the midfoot uh, flexes in the opposite direction. And then we can even see the toes dorsiflex as the foot yeah. swings out and contact is made. Not a real stri heel strike, but just as you would expect with such a foot, a foot where there's more um, even um, contact, initial contact uh, of the foot over the entire substrate. You know, most of those tracks don't have a real distinctive heel impression. The ones that Roger cast, you know, are remarkably flat because the foot is coming down flat. There's not a heel strike and a toe off at the other end of an arch. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious. I mean, I get kind of worked up here because it's like, you know. Well, we want to all, everybody wants to relate it to themselves, like, because humans incorrectly a lot of walk with the heel strike first but right you know something walking bipedally on the, uh difficult terrain and steep terrain is going to be a, up on the balls of their feet a lot and adapted to have that mid tarsal hinge and sure feature right. and everything to it's, adapt it's a, to that environment exactly uh, it's a great adaptation for walking up steep slopes yeah and I that mean, flat footedness why, why would it be like that well on the flat it's not such a an advantage, but when you're negotiating, I mean, just imagine what it's like when you're trying to go up a steep slope in, in, in stiff logging or not logging hiking boots. Yeah. You know, we usually resort to switchbacks yeah. where our foot is uh, on the side or we walk up sideways kind of, but rarely do you kick your toes in. I mean, you see that with someone wearing crampons going up a glacier, but, right. but not on, on a hillside so much a steep hillside. Yeah, and, and it, uh, you know, the other explanation in my mind is the lack of the arch doesn't concentrate excessive forces on the toes, right. bending forces during during toe off. If the push off is coming from the entire forefoot, then you spare the toes those bending stresses that have selected for remarkably short toes in humans. Right. And you still have this much more prehensile foot. Which we see again when you look at the Patterson film, you know it's it's so it, it, it's so counterintuitive if this were a hoax because from the the sole side the toes look short and stubby, just like little little toe tips on the pads. But right. when that foot dorsiflexes, those toes are really long, and you see the toes go up. I've yes, yeah, I've see stabilized, and I've stabilized It corresponds to a the hint of a flexion crease that's present across the ball of the foot of Patty with a lot of, of webbing up between the toes, but they're still remarkably flexible. You know, and sometimes you get that, 
that crease that shows up other time, or, or it may just show up here on the outer edge where the soul pad is bound, you know, to the sub to the uh, uh, underlying tissue. Yeah. But when the when the weight is pressed on that thick soul pad, it tends to expand laterally and push out all the creases. That's why the feet look, you know, why do why do the feet look so flat? Well, if you, have you ever looked at an elephant's foot? Right. The sole pad of the elephant foot, you know, when it when it steps, it it squashes out and it any creases or grooves that were in that sole pad just get flattened out, stretched yeah. out and the imprint of the foot is remarkably featureless except yeah. for the you know the uh, nails of the toes up at the other end and we're, we're talking ends. about a, a a creature that that would be walking through heavy deep snow a lot of the time too which would make sense to that type of uh spreading action almost like a snowshoe adaptation for the foot up in sure. that type of environment yeah. would make sense crawling over slippery rocks or rivers and all kinds of stuff it would make well, sense. Certainly. Yeah. There's a great uh, comment here. Sapphire Elf has uh, with the mid-tarsal break in the foot that uh, Dr. Meldrum has discovered, does that point to Bigfoot being more like a great ape and not from the genus Homo? So does the mid-tarsal break indicate more of it being uh, more like a great ape or on the animal kingdom and less in the Homo's? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and and early on, as as this started to take focus, I wondered if that would be a discriminating feature that would would uh, uh, compel you know considering it to be more ape like. But then, as I started, you know, th this these insights caused me to go and look at the footprint record of early hominins more carefully, mm -hmm. and so there were some interesting features that surfaced. Uh, with the uh, famous Laetoli hominid footprints from East Africa, which are uh, attributed normally, anyway, are attributed to, to Australopithecus afarensis, or Lucy and her kind. And uh, there is evidence of a pressure ridge. And uh, it's, it's, it's a long story, but, uh, but it's fascinating. Uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, wrangling with other anthropologists, I mean, on the one hand, there were some that said, you know, these footprints are in, in gloppy, wet volcanic ash. You can't interpret anything about them. And I said, well, maybe you can't. Right. <laughs> you just need uh, you just need to open your eyes and look at the anatomy. I mean, there's all kinds of anatomical detail. And some of those prints, you can see individual toe tips, you know, they're, they're that. There is that much detail there. And um, and then others, on the other hand, try to explain away, you know, like one, one person said, well, there were terrestrial termites that would burrow like a gopher, you know, and, and heap up a mound. And he said they were probably just a, uh, the termite mound where a termite had a colony had crossed the tracks. Well, I pointed out several tracks that had the exact same feature, which is in the exact place that his own reconstruction of the foot skeleton placed the mid-tarsal joint. And I said, okay, so you're telling me that these independent termite colonies have crossed perpendicular to the footprint line and, and transected multiple examples of footprints at exactly the same place? Yeah. I said, you know, that's a little... 
you know, okay, oh, well, then they were artifacts. They were excavation artifacts, you know, Mary Leakey. And, and it's a, still, it still doesn't even answer to the question as to what made the entire footprint to begin with for a termite to crawl across. It just, it's strange well, to me. Well, he had, they, they had no question that they were made by hominins, but his, his point was simply the ones that were saying that you couldn't interpret they were, oh, they were I see. you couldn't interpret any details of anatomy. These are actually known hominid footprints. We're not not the Bigfoot ones that you're looking at today. Oh right, yes. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah. These yeah. were, okay. these were yes. hominid footprints in in the volcanic ash. Gotcha. The uh, you know the uh, ossified volcanic ash. But the point being that there is remarkable evidence. Well, the 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 real clincher was I went to Berkeley, and Tim White has some of the best at least accessible documentation of the, uh, of the Laetoli tracks. Now, subsequently they've been 3d scanned and all kinds of things, but at the time he had these remarkable sets of um, stereoscopic photographs. And he had this really, really nice set of, of um, uh, stereo viewers that you could put up and look at these images. And, you know, they literally just jumped out of the tabletop at you mm. And they had done a complete set. Uh, this this track ran roughly north and south. So they did a complete set in the mid-morning and a complete set from the mid-afternoon. So the light uh, was complementary. And you could look at the two sets. And what was in shadow in the morning was now in day- daylight in the afternoon. And, and there was no lost information. But boom, I mean, the, the, uh, the features just jumped out at you. And, and uh, there was a lot of detail there that had never been otherwise well documented and published. The, you know, there were photogrammetric kind of like, like topographic maps done of the trackways. All kinds of errors and misrepresentations there that gave uh, misleading interpretation or, or impressions of the anatomy of the foot. So I had a chance to really look at this carefully. And then he pulls out uh, three or four casts, including this beautiful cast of that had never been published of a footprint that had not simply a ridge of, of kind of extruded or, or mounded up uh, ash, but it had what, what I would describe as an extrusion front where the oh. ash was especially wet. And so it squeezed out you know, there, there were examples where ash had squeezed up between the, the, the rather prominent gap between the first and second toes. And, it, you know, it extruded up like this. And then it, it under its own weight, it fell over and it left this very distinctive looking rounded edge of this extruded mud. Well, what we were seeing, it, you know, midway back on the track here was the mud extruded from under the forefoot after the heel had come up, not just a ridge, but an actual extrusion. For the point, I'm, I'm reason I'm emphasizing this is, yeah. is it it was actually absolutely pristine. There was no chance that this was a you know where they had flaked off an extra layer with a fracture line or something right that at you know coincidentally at that particular point, and it fell at exactly the same point as our supposed termite mounds, you know, <laughs> on the other tracks. And yeah. then there was a secondary one as the foot rocked forward. There was that kind of final push off from the heads of the metatarsals. There was another smaller secondary extrusion with the exact same configuration and, and confirmation. 
So, okay, so back to the original question now. So, so you know, does this suggest more ape-like or more hominin-like? Well, I've got uh, evidence, and I've published on this extensively, and and it, I tell you, it's like beating your head against the wall because yeah. there is a there is a group, there is a um, there are individuals out there who push the agenda that these hominins were just little humans, basically. And that once they were bipedal, they walked bipedally like little humans. And, uh, and so they, they don't want to acknowledge that the arch was a very recent innovation. Right. Uh, probably not. Well, and, and it, was a, it was a mosaicism, too. It wasn't just from flat foot to arch foot. There was first an increased stability of the outer uh, column of the foot between the heel bone and the cuboid in front of it. And then, and then gradually the foot became more with the, with the uh, uh, non-divergence of the big toe, the uh, medial arch started to take shape and was more pronounced. But even up till um, the immediate predecessor of us and Neanderthals, say, which still is called the uh, Homo heidelbergensis, it's a very broad, it's, it's now been partitioned. There's, there was a great article with the discovery of the Harbin skull that really kind of sorted some of this out, but uh, but the point being that creature had an arch, albeit a low, very broad arch, a low um, arch with a bro- on a broad, robust foot, much more robust than ours, um, and and so it was shared by us who refined it even more as our skeleton became lighter and we became lean, mean running machines versus right. Neanderthals who were the uh, you know, the bull riders. Right. I, you know, and, and I say that, but there was actually a study done where they looked at the, at the uh, 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 healed injuries, fractures and so forth of the skeletons attributed to Neanderthals and the type, the nature and distribution of the injuries most resembled. They, they compared it to human occupations and it most resembled bull riders what at rodeos yeah bull riders really so, the, so in, in other words neanderthals were not out there you know riding the bull but they were in close with right. weapons that required them to to be grappling hand to hand with some of these big pleistocene fauna wow and uh, and as a result had the kinds of you know broken wrists and and uh, pelvic fractures and things that uh, were associated with bull riding so again circle back see i'm, I'm terrible at digression no it's but, great uh, c- circle back <laughs> in the words of jen saki and uh, the the original question is there's evidence of flat flexible feet characterizing the early hominid form of bipedalism all the way up until at least homo erectus at about uh, you know, anywhere from 1.5 to 2 million years ago. Right. And, and so uh, our arch is a fairly recent innovation. You know, there was a, there was some work done by uh, uh, Jeremy De Silva, I think it was, where, uh, where he was, he thought he was taking a pot shot at my uh, placing significance on the mid tarsal evidence of mid tarsal break in early hominins by he went out, he literally, his, the first, uh, the, the initial data he collected, he went to a shopping mall. I don't know how he did this with, with human subjects restrictions, but he set up a pressure plate 
and had people walk barefoot on this and and uh, measured their uh, you know the profile of their step and and could visualize the degree of development of their arch hmm. and found out of uh, some 30 or 40 subjects there were one or two or three that had a remarkable degree of flexibility through they had rather what we would call flat mobile feet hypermobile feet and so he said, there, you see, even modern humans. And I said, well, no, wait a minute, you're, you're drawing the completely wrong conclusion. The fact that there are still some modern humans that That's show not. that primitive trait suggests that it's not a very well-established trait, does it? It means right. that it's a very recent vintage. And, and so you've just, you've just <laughs> confirmed what I've been saying all along. Yeah. Yes, we would expect to see a fair amount of variation in the expression of this trait for which natural selection has had only a short period of time to solidify and to, uh, uh, you know, even if you ignore all the pat potential pathologies to explain uh, the expression of, of that kind of flexibility. Yeah. So it's a very recent, uh, a recent innovation. So Bigfoot could be on either side. It could be an ape that has converged on bipedalism in a similar fashion as early hominins have. And, uh, you know, given its massive size, I mean, once it's, once it's on the ground, because, a, a you know, an 800 pound gorilla has no business climbing in a tree. Right. Um, once it's on the ground, there's basically two options. You either are on all fours or you're bipedal and the reconfiguration of the shoulder girdle, the things about the upright trunk that that had selected for bipedal-like behaviors and uh, anatomies in these Miocene apes before would be present in in uh, Gigantopithecus and his and its ancestry, or right. some other species um, uh, that that could have become gigantic during the Pleistocene, as did so many other northern latitude mammals, or if bipedalism, if Sasquatch bipedalism is uniquely shared with early hominins or hominins, then I would say, again, given the lack of any material culture, any stone tools, it would have to be a very early divergence off of that that family tree, you know, near the near the uh, root, so to speak, of the hominin radiation, something like a paranthropus. And that's where this comparison of the Paranthropus skull to Patty is so remarkably interesting. She shows the specializations or the disproportionate development of the lower face, the deep jaws, the flat face, the very uh, forward uh, flaring uh, cheekbones for yeah. the massive chewing muscles and, you know, the lack of a frontal, just the skull going back. Right. Anyway, it's... Uh, it, that is what's fascinating, and it, and it does a lot of times does come back to Patty, and it's so interesting because I have stabilized that footage and zoomed in on the foot. And what blew my mind is like you're saying, even when when the foot's coming up, I'm like, okay, if this is like an extended foot in a rubber costume, right. how are the, how are the toes flexing upward for the next right. step? And then you stop and you scan up, and you're like, and when the toes are flexing up, how come the appropriate musculature up in the quadriceps and things seem to be flexing oh yeah and then when yeah. it's push pushing off in the back leg why is the calf muscle flexing yeah. and you can see musculature in the back and the shoulders when it turns and and yeah. as as the quality of the footage has 
come out, you know, as the source footage has come forward. And, and as I have, as somebody who's been involved in stabilizing footage and clarifying it for since like 2009, I, I can't find like where this is a guy in a suit. And, and right. it, it boggles oh, my mind. And the footprints oh, too, you know, all this, the footprint images and the castings and stuff, some of them even seem to have like, uh, um, like, uh, indications of toenails and like toe prints or indications of I'm not uh, what what do you call them on the fingerprints on your toes sure. yeah dermatoglyphics skin nope. skin ridge detail yeah skin ridge details and some of yep. the finer ones but you're saying that even uh, ones that people like if I encountered a track that might be considered to me deformed or not worth it someone like you might look at it as an expert and see a way more useful information than something that would be assumed as like a pristine track. Oh, exactly. It's just flat. Cause then you're seeing actual locomotion and right. pressure and weight and movement and all that stuff in the, yeah. in what we might consider a botched track or something. Right. Oh, exactly. Okay. When, uh, when, when Paul Freeman took me out to show me the tracks that he had found that, that morning, you know, this, this was what he was saying. He said, I, he said, I've got so many tracks, so many casts, rather. He said, I, I, I wouldn't even bother casting these. I, I don't make casts unless they're they're very exceptional footprints. And I get out there and look at these, and, and, and I'm thinking just the opposite. Because, the, yeah, and just as you're pointing out, what he sees as, as imperfections or incompleteness is actually the telling, the telltale signs of an animate foot varying as it interacts with the substrate under successive conditions and and speed of walking and direction of turning i mean there there were all these dynamics of an animated foot that that were just uh just amazing and and as it was you know i only i only was able to make uh, seven casts but they, those seven casts uh preserved a, a wide range of of dynamic features that were very informative so yeah there's a few there are a few comments here from the the audience here asking a little bit more information about some of the deformed footprints that you've seen so here's one of like the the deformed feet that have evidence of healing after being crushed and yeah. then also a question from john q maybe that could piggyback that about uh maybe fatty deposits and things like that that could be changing foot profiles or um, yeah, both those are, are fascinating. The first one, I mean, of course, the the uh, the classic example is the the Bosberg cripple foot. Yeah, uh, which which has always fascinated me. I mean, that was that was the example that really tipped the scale uh, in Dr. Krantz's mind, because uh, you know the the inference of anatomy uh, that was possible from that. Uh, uh, confirmed some aspects of, of foot proportion and function that he had had drawn attention to, namely the uh, elongation of the heel. Th this was a, a detail that that was misconstrued and and has been perpetuated even by people like uh, Dr. David Daglin and hit some of his writings that uh, where Grover talked about the movement of the ankle forward on the mm -hmm. foot. Well, what he was, what he meant was simply not that the ankle actually moved because Daglin and Daglin should have known better, um, you know, went on and on about how ridiculous this is. How could, how can a, the joint actually move forward in the foot? Well, it's proportionately further forward, i.e. the heel is elongated. 
the heel is elongated to increase the leverage because, because with the foot still flexible in the instep, you don't have the advantage of leverage out here in the forefoot. The, the fulcrum of the lever is at the transverse tarsal or mid-tarsal joint. Right. And so with increased body mass, the only way to accommodate that is to increase leverage by increasing the length of the heel, which makes the ankle look like it's farther forward on the foot. The heel juts out, and the, the forefoot seems proportionately narrower, or uh, shorter rather, but there's no movement of the ankle joint. But you can see that on Patty too. And this also led into another misconception, which was when she lifted her foot, you know, and, and she's swinging and, and now the tension on the Achilles tendon, the calcaneal tendon is slackened the, 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 uh, or lessened than the, 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 um, the tendon slack slackens and the heel seems to be more prominent, more protruding. And Daglin right. actually shows a frame which, which depicts this to the extreme and, uh, and says, well, look, it's the artificial foot jutting back beyond the uh the, the costume wearers yeah they say they think that's evidence of a costume foot when right. really it's evidence of the the size and the mass of something yes. bipedal that's immense yes. and all you have to do is look ahead to a, to to a frame where the weight is on the foot and the and the calf musculature is contracting and the tendon is as straight as can be <laughs> off of the heel there's no slack there's no protrusion it's perfect so i mean it's just it's silly but back to this um cripple foot uh, Grover noticed that the relative positions of these very prominent bunionettes, these bulges, inflamed joints on the outer edge of the uh, of the foot, were farther forward than they would be in a human foot, right? Because the heel was disproportionately elongated, so that corroborated. Well, I had the I had the good fortune of actually being invited to speak at uh, at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And uh, uh, the entire podiatry and, and a number of orthopedists uh, from the hospital and then also podiatrists from the community uh, part of this group were invited. There was probably 50 to 70 uh, people in attendance, all professionals, so I could really talk shop. And I talked about all these biomechanical aspects of the, of the functional morphology of the foot, showcasing the, the cripple foot. Right. And they were just amazed. I mean, they they didn't have a dog in the fight. They didn't have a an agenda, and so they uh, were simply looking at the anatomy. Exactly. There you go. Is looking at the, the anatomy, uh, and and were extremely here. impressed. And this very uh, animated uh, conversation ensued with many of them, and carried on afterward about what the interpretation of this was. And that was one possibility that it that it was a healed, crushed foot from a you know crushing injury another possible interpretation is that there was a, a neuropathy a lesion on the spinal cord that caused deformation of the foot downstream down the nerves and uh, that one uh, <laughs> that was that was suggested by a a relative of mine a distant uh, second or third cousin another meldrum russell meldrum <clears throat> who who went into orthopedic surgery and became a hip and knee uh, specialist, but I, I uh, imposed upon him for his opinion on this, sent him that very photo that you showed that has the two uh, yardsticks clearly visible 
Yeah. And, you know, he was looking at that and he was quite impressed. And, and he said, uh, he thought it was not a congenital deformity because uh, typically that would involve both feet. But he said, so it was either a crushing injury or a spinal neuropathy. He goes, could you check in that area? He said, you know, this was back before the, the days of uh, uh, HIPAA and FERPA and all the confidentiality. So you could, could you check with a, a hospital? That was a pretty small town. If, if I had a patient like this, I would, I would rec, uh, uh, refer them to have a spinal MRI to yeah, check their yeah, health yeah. of their spinal cord. And I said, well, you know, I might be able to do that possibly, but I said, you do realize Russell, the guy would have to have 17 inch feet. Yeah. And there's this pregnant pause on the line. <laughs> he goes, Oh, Oh, you're right. You're right. I mean, he was so, he was so preoccupied with the anatomy, which was very satisfying, very logical, very rational that he completely missed the, the two uh, scales in the, so then I get a call about two weeks later and his boss uh, who was the foot specialist of the group had had returned from a vacation and had seen these and he calls me up we talked about their interpretation at length and then his closing statement was was what was uh not really noteworthy i mean all the rest was as well but this is the part that i always remember but he said he said i hope you don't mind but i imposed on russell uh that he let me have the the photo that you sent him and I have it framed now and it hangs in my office on my wall above my desk. And, and every few months when I get a new set of interns to take on rounds, this is the first case I have them evaluate. Oh, man. <laughs> so it's an anyway. unsolvable equation. <laughs> that one. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there was the, the second question about fat deposits. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of tricky when you're when you're dealing with the fat that's in your soul pad is some of the last fat to be metabolized in starvation. You know, if you see these little uh, children in Africa with the round bellies and spindly limbs, if you notice, they still have a reasonable fat pad on the soles of their feet. But eventually it does. It does start to um, wane. And what's interesting is the tracks that I cast in, in 1996 uh, were in February. They were the first tracks of the spring. Now, we don't know if these creatures hibernate or estivate or hole up for any period of time during the dead of winter yeah. in these areas, but uh, it's a very good possibility. And even if they don't, uh, pickings are probably pretty lean in, during the, the, the winter months until that green up starts and thaw starts. One of the things that's interesting is these footprints, which are about the same size as patties, they're just under 15 inches, um, whereas Patty clearly has a very visible, thick, healthy pad, and she looks very robust, yeah, has yeah. pendulous breasts that are probably, well, she's, she could well be lactating. I, I shouldn't say are mostly fatty tissue. Her body could have a lot of fatty tissue on it. She looks rather cut and muscular elsewhere. You can pick out uh, muscle groups quite readily, but her sole pad looks really thick, really fleshy. Right. Um, on in contrast, the tracks that I cast there in uh, in southeastern Washington, you can actually see some of the bony features. There's a uh, there's a discernible little bulge that is right under the uh, point of contact between the calcaneus and the cuboid. And mm -hmm. you know, if you hold up a 
foot skeleton, you can see that tuberosity. It, it forms a real important attachment point for the deep plantar ligament, which would be more evident in a flat foot, not in an arched foot. Right, but right. it suggests that perhaps that sole pad is a little more um, meager and, uh, and thinner, uh, such that some of those bony features in that soft mud uh, actually made made some contact and uh, might have been uh, struggling to find food. That one a little bit was a little thin. Probably, yeah. I mean, see, that's what we think it was doing. Was it was down out of the high country on that farming uh, along those farming roads because right in that vicinity there are abandoned uh, plum and apple orchards, old old pioneer orchards, and the fruit um, is you know still accumulated. Sometimes it's kind of rotten, but if it if it's frozen over winter. Um, just thawing out now, it can still be gleaned in those early um, spring thaw months or weeks. Right. So there's still some residual crops that grow up there yeah. that they come in and are acquainted with. Yeah, right. Because so, otherwise, the fields are pretty fallow and everything else is buried. The only thing that holds its fruit up above the snow line is uh, hawthorn berries. Right. And uh, they're harder and harder to find. The uh, ranchers tend to get rid of them because they have those deadly, not deadly, but those wicked uh, long thorns, which the cattle get into. And if they get poked in the eye, it uh, causes an infection that can be uh, very problematic, if not fatal. That's interesting. Well, uh, Dr. Meldrum, before we wrap this up, I'm sure everybody's really interested to hear some of your personal stories or encounters that you've had. In fact, this one even goes a little bit further. Uh, you can answer this one if you want or not in this much detail. But um, has Dr. J had any uh, orb or UAP experiences like UFO experiences around Bigfoot habitat? So you can answer that one. And then I yeah. would love to hear some of your personal encounters uh, that might be plausible uh, Bigfoot encounters that you've had. I've, I've not had anything associated with Bigfoot. I mean, my my closest uh, UFO or UAP, whatever you want to call it now, experience was back in my college years, where I re- took a real interest in in the constellations and stargazing. And uh, even when I was a kid, I mean, that that's sort of a carryover from when I was a kid. We had a big sun deck uh, sticking out uh, the back of our of our home, and it was real common for all the kids on the block. And there were a lot of kids on the block. Uh, during the summers, frequently we would have sleepovers and all our sleeping bags spread out and, and sit and watch the stars and look for satellites going over. And we were really good at finding or cat, catching, watching satellites and, and, of course, the occasional shooting star. And so I, I was familiar with what a satellite looks like. But on this occasion, uh, there was an object which instead of that kind of oblique path across from kind of northwest to southeast sort of or something like that mm-hmm. this thing was going due north to south and suddenly made executed two right angle turns i mean just as sharp as if you put a square on there and uh, uh i you know it just jaw dropped i thought well there's there's nothing that i can think of because it, it was it was way up there it was tiny so it was moving along quite fast and then to make such an abrupt but no Bigfoot associated with that and no orbs. You know, I've asked a lot of people about orbs, about their experiences. and People have shared the most recent one where I pressed the matter home a bit. And I said, well, don't you have any pictures to back this up? I mean, something that's not obviously a, 
uh, a flash flare or reflection or something right. like that. He goes, oh, sure. I've got lots of pictures. And I said, well, send me your best one. I always have to emphasize that because invariably people will send me pictures of, of things, footprints or whatever. And I'll say, I'll, I'll have some criticism or some question, some caveat. And, you know, they get a little defensive and then they go, oh, well, I've got better pictures than that. Well, why didn't you send your best ones? I don't understand this logic. This happens over and over. (laughs) I guess they're keeping it close to the vest. They don't want to give, show their whole hand right off the bat. But in any case, this fellow finally agreed. Not finally. It didn't take persuasion. But he agreed and he sent me pictures. Well, I get the picture. It's a flash photo at night at a camp spot. And the air is full of pollen. Yeah. And he said, and I go, what am I looking for? And he goes, oh, they're all over. You can't miss them. They're, oh, there's little yellow orbs just floating all over in the air. I said, that's Paul. I said, I've been in those circumstances. Just that summer, I had been up in the Colorado Rockies, and it was predominantly ponderosa pine that I was familiar with from, from a, when I was a kid. And, you know, in that pollen, they over-pollinate. They overdo it. Yeah. Um, and so to where pollen is piled up in, you know, like drifts of snow. And when it's blowing through the air, I remember stepping out of my tent and, you know, to t- go take care of business with my headlamp on. And I turned my headlamp on and I couldn't see. It was a whiteout. It was like, like a blizzard. Like the Star Wars. Everywhere. And that's that's what he sent me a picture of. So, I, you know, I welcome, I, I don't rule out these quote unquote paranormal experiences or, or phenomenon. Yeah. It's just that it seems that whenever I'm present, they, they disappear. <laughs> they, <laughs> they, they don't, or they don't make a, an appearance. Right. You know? And so um, uh, I, I don't know. I can't, obviously I'm, I'm not inclined to take people at their word that I don't, you know, people that I don't know from Adam. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and I have no, you know, set no gauge of their uh, not only, you know, not, not even an, an issue of credibility, but just their ability to interpret their experiences. Mm. You know, I've learned this from footprints as well. Uh, when people claim to have seen footprints, unless they've documented it or unless they are extremely experienced, you know, and are of a skill set that that qualifies them, their their opinion to be reliable. I can't take them at their word because when in so many instances, when they do have pictures, it's a pothole or it's a bear track or it's. A human footprint, you know, uh, we've got just a real proliferation of extraneous data that I'm that I'm constantly sifting. You know, people accuse me of being gullible. They have no idea how much chaff I sift through that I discount or that I, you know, and I and I try to I'm an educator. So I try to take the opportunity to uh, to teach. And in some cases, the individuals have also allowed me to post examples so i can show how would you evaluate this you know and here's what i've come up with does anyone have any other ideas or does this help you to interpret things in the future so so that's that um as far as personal experiences i've you know i've i've heard vocalizations on probably a half a dozen different occasions things that i i think are attributable yeah i mean short uh short of of a good recording subjected to a sonographic uh, interpretation it's again it's it's a very subjective kind of uh, thing but i've you know i've tried to 
educate myself, expose myself to a ver- as uh, many variations of vocalizations, and, and some some that that uh, quite frequently um, surprise me. I had yeah. no idea that this animal could make a noise like that, you know, until right. you hear it. And uh, I can understand how someone in the field hearing that for the first time would be quite, uh, uh, you know, disquieted over over that sound. Um, I've found tracks on also on at least a half a dozen occasions, sometimes in extremely remote places where the the chance of of someone hoaxing uh, is is virtually you know uh, can be discounted, right, which right. then leaves it is is my interpretation of the track. Um, uh, accurate and and you know people have to remember that there's a, a quite a spectrum of quality of yeah. trace evidence and not everything is as clear and pristine as the tracks that I use to demonstrate the points which I'm very confident in and and there's you know it's either or it either is hoaxer it's the real I mean like the tracks I saw in 96 uh, they were either real or they were hoax. There was no misinterpretation. They weren't bear tracks. They weren't human tracks. They weren't potholes in the mud. Um, they were uh, they were footprints. And so um, I, I think that I'm capable of telling the difference between an animated trackway and and a, a, a line of stomped uh, artificial impressions. Yeah. Um, the closest thing to well, I've had a couple of close encounters. Uh, one that didn't that I that I go into some detail in my book, in the introduction, uh, my first field research expedition, if you will, or the field research I prefer, in the Six Rivers National Forest. We were just north of the Patterson Gimlin film site, mm-hmm. and just over the ridge from Bluff Creek is Blue Creek, and that the headwaters of that drainage, and then that they. Uh, uh, lead up into the Six Rivers Wilderness, uh, very remote and and not often traveled because it's not as scenic as the northern end of that uh, of that wilderness area, which gets much more much more backpacking traffic. We were there for a month and didn't see. Well, we saw uh, one one pair passing through, just a brief glimpse. They didn't stop. They didn't want to. Go. I mean, we were a pretty raunchy looking group by that time after three <laughs> yeah, weeks in the yeah. field with. <laughs> <laughs> with uh, rather uh, Spartan rations and and r- rough uh, accommodations, um, and smelled like llama, uh, <laughs> like llama dung. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but um, but on that trip, we had uh, something come into camp, and uh, it, it made for an exciting uh, some something which did leave traces. I mean, left footprints, uh, not super distinct because they were in grass and and or um a a boggy effluent next to a spring but brushing against the tent you know kind of like i think it was counting coup running right past my tent dragging its fingertips along the fly really you you see the tent respond to it and that footprint right alongside and uh, rifling through our backpacks and then more recently i had an experience up in alberta Canada, which uh, I guess was just on TV recently because someone here at school um, uh, mentioned it to me, mentioned seeing it, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it was with Todd Standing. So it was a very controversial, has become, let's see, at the time it wasn't controversial. I mean, it was equivocal. Yeah, I was yeah. um, skeptical of what he had, some of the data he presented, but wanted to 
you know, take him up on his offer to come up there and see one of his study sites and, and look at some of the uh, terrain and the evidence that he was finding firsthand. And uh, as a res- I mean, it, which included we we witnessed 13 and a half inch tracks in the moss. We uh, saw some interesting tree breaks, which, you know, again, I'm the jury's out. And some tree structures, which I'm very, um, very uh, reticent about tree structures in general. I think it's sure, uh, sure. a lot of things are overinterpreted. And, and I, my, my standard requires that there be some associative trace or physical evidence, footprints, hair, scat, something, handprints, right. um, the, the, that are, uh, go beyond just evidence of transport uh, as opposed to windblow. But in any case, something approached camp uh, on the last night I was there, and Dr. Bindernagel was there as well. We heard a vocalization. It uh, kind of a whistling call. This is about 2.30 a.m. Something approached camp, stayed just outside the firelight. Uh, we had a big, you know, uh, bonfire kind of go in a campfire. And we were staying up late, hoping to attract things into camp like this, yeah, this very yeah. thing. It circled camp, breaking brush, sounded like a bull moose, given the breakage that we were hearing. And one person... Um, walked towards, approached the source of the sound, speaking reassuringly, trying to get a interaction and was getting, I mean, she would speak and it would break a branch in, in immediate response. And then it broke. It sounded like Matt Moneymaker breaking his Louisville slugger across the tree, <laughs> tree trunk, just crack. And I'm watching through a night vision monocular and uh, from from near the fire there, and I could see her standing there. And when that crack, uh, you know, re- uh, reported, she her her knees legs started to shake. So <laughs> she she backtracked away from it, and I had to shift the, the the smoke shift, and I shifted position just as I moved. I mean, because it didn't know we had night vision, whatever it was, or whoever didn't know it, I had night vision, and so. Uh, it, I'm sure it thought it was completely uh, obscured, right. but it broke from the deep dark shadows down in this uh, in this little uh, stream, dry stream bed, yeah. on the other side of a berm that we were camped against on the road, and uh, crossed the road into the trees and shadows on the opposite side. And so I just saw, I just saw it for that that amount of time. And I and the berm obscured you know obscured it. If if you imagine Patty, but jet black as she's walking behind that that uh, flood debris, um, that's basically what I saw, but not nearly as clear. There was uh, not a lot of ambient light. I didn't have an illuminator, and so there was a, there was a bit of snow, a bit of noise. That is, you know, yeah, on the image. And my first, you know, my first reaction was to was to yeah wait what <laughs> yeah try try to try to repeat it by moving the thing seeing if i just had seen a blur you know right. a smear uh an echo a shadow and an, of an echo or an echo of a shadow or something and i couldn't you know and and i almost didn't say anything uh again because i wasn't confident i wasn't sure i still not 100 percent 
yeah. but I think it's better than 50-50. Given the circumstances, I decided, well, we should at least talk about it. And I want somebody, I knew I had to leave in the morning before sunup to, to make right. it back to my flight. And the sun didn't come up very early that far north that late in the year. Um, and so uh, I wanted them to really scrutinize that hillside, and, which they did. So you had, to have somebody, you had to have somebody in the dark at the same night that you saw that go walk down in that same spot? I, uh, oh, well, no, I wanted uh, the next day. The next oh, day. Okay. Was, I was going to say, that would take some courage to go down there to reenact that. Right well, yeah, it would. <laughs> it would, quite honestly, because, you know, it's interesting because that this was kind of the, the interesting thing is, you know, I had this impression of it. And given what I saw, and that's the problem with the monocular is if everything's flattened, kind of like looking through a, a, a you know, a telephoto lens, it, it foreshortens everything. Right. And I what well, I thought it was just on the other side of the berm. I thought it had come up right behind the berm and uh, and which was only, you know, about, oh, 10 yards from us. Hmm. Well, when when uh, they were cutting sign. Todd was filming as they're looking there and basically all they could hope to look for was crushed grass or broken twigs and things um, to see if there was the evidence of something heavy having passed through there. The ground was too hard. The gravel bed of the road wouldn't take a track. Yeah. And uh, as he's filming, you know, he's showing, he ultimately came to my lab and was showing me this film and, and in the parts where he's filming, I'm thinking to myself, no, he's in the wrong place. He's way over on the other side of the creek, and I and I think it was right here behind the berm. Hmm. Well, they found what, and it was coming from the area that I thought it would have originated. It angled up, and sure enough, it did go across the road and behind these trees, just just like, and and they flagged that out, and then John Bendernagel walked it while while uh, Todd came back up to the point where I was standing and filmed him. Now, uh, granted, you know you can do a lot of uh fudging trying to recreate with different cameras and different lenses and so forth sure but i mean it it gave the impression of what i saw except john was on the other side and whatever i saw was at least a foot and a half taller than john so it was was much bigger and that's why i thought it was so close because it was very big and so even at that distance it it seemed like it was much closer than it really was right so you know, we'll never know. I mean, it's I, I, I'm almost reluctant because pe- people will say, oh, he's just grasping at straws. You know, it, was, it could have been anything. It could have it could have been his imagination. It could have been a bear. Those weren't really tracks. You know, it was. But we did see tracks. But, and I, and I challenge anybody to go out in the dark <laughs> under campfire light while you're looking at the campfire. And then you stand up and turn around and go look into the dark and even use like really good. Uh, night vision equipment that you could spend upwards of a thousand dollars on and FLIR equipment and go out there even three or three to five thousand dollars and and uh you're going to (laughs) struggle and these things are uh, these encounters are unpredictable and when you oh i know you know what i mean and so i really challenge anybody to even go out there and try to film a bear in the dark or anything like that uh right it's a difficult yeah. task. I've I've tried and tried and tried it. It's exactly. Not, oh, it's I know. A, it's a challenge to even get out into those remote environments and to put yourself in the right scenario. Let alone to be really geared up and ready to to capture something uh, 
irrefutable, you know, which is yeah. what everybody wants, you know, what are, what are your, what are your thoughts on the, you mentioned vocalizations. We're running almost up on two hours. Can you believe it or not? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's been amazing. But uh, yeah. What is your opinion on the, on the vocalizations, like the Sierra sounds or the samurai chatter, that kind right. of thing? Well, um, they're mixed. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the, the sounds. Uh, I, I can remember, you know, the first time, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. I, I, I was in a, a little uh, uh, used bookstore, little, little closet of a used bookstore, and I pulled down this, uh, I think it was analog, science fiction, science fact magazine, and I'm thumbing through it, and there in the back was an advertisement, the Sierra Sounds. Ooh. I mean, this was quite a long time ago. I was probably just a teenager at the time, and uh, I ordered it. It was a 45. Uh, record, <laughs> final record. Really? In, in a sleeve, yeah. And it had the picture of the wiki up and it had a picture of one of the footprints and then it had a little narration and, and here it was. And ah, I was fascinated by it. The sounds sounded very pongent, very ape-like to me, the chatter and in, in many respects. And uh, especially the whistle I was always impressed with. Right. And uh, and that became even more so when I was writing, researching Sasquatch Legend Meets Science. And, you know, I was uh, talking with and reading the reports from um, Dr. Benson, the bioacoustician from down in Corpus Christi. And uh, his he, it was he it was he who planted the thought of infrasound in my in my brain right. uh, when he made the comment that he wouldn't be surprised based on what he was listening to if these creatures weren't capable of producing infrasound i started doing some research and you know i'd heard about the humpback whales and elephants communicating over long distances but i had no idea how much had been done uh, about uh, how many different species had been documented using infrasound for various things, uh, various means of communication and or intimidation or stunning their prey, right. uh, like in the case of the roar of a tiger, for example. Right. Um, anyway, um, so that was interesting because there's a whistle in there that has this kind of an overtone quality to it. This isn't necessarily interesting. I mean, obviously, we're hearing it. We're listening to it. But uh, this this idea of an overtone that was probably produced by the pharynx. And that got me interested in, in, um, in overtone singing, the, the Inuits and the, uh, yeah. the throat singers of Juva, you know, that get this thing going on as they, as they chant there. It, uh, it's really quite fascinating. And it, it made me wonder if, if they were capable, maybe that was a quality which, uh, also gave them their remarkable, the presumably remarkable, potentially remarkable ability to imitate sounds. Right. You know, uh, imitate other wildlife or imitate human voices. Right. So, um, so having said that, as I said, on the back of the of the record was uh, a footprint. And uh, it's an odd-looking footprint. It looks like a swim fin. I mean, it's very triangular. The toes are like Vienna sausages. And you can't tell if it's a right or a left. They're just lined up identical hmm. to one another straight across the foot. 
it looks really odd. And at one point, Ron was gracious enough to send me uh, a number of photographic images of various footprints and casts. There's a few out there in the public uh, uh, that uh, are representative of those. And again, they look they look fake. I put it that way. They look fake to me. The, the Sierra sounds of footprints look fake to you? Some of yeah, the ones that I've seen uh, documented, cast and photographed, they they either look fake or they look so abnormal they don't look anything like a typical a typical Sasquatch footprint. Huh. Very very like I said, very triangular toes, just uh, uh, carbon copies of one another straight across the distal end of the foot, and so you can't tell whether it's a right or a left. I have no idea whether it's a right or a left foot. Right. And I expressed those concerns to Ron. He thought I was not giving them, uh, you know, their, their just due. He said that they've, they'd seen very good, clear footprints and there was no question that these were the real thing. Yeah. And uh, so it just, that kind of, kind of cast a pall over it always. It's been lingering there. Um, and then I, I have very differing opinions as to Scott Nelson's interpretations of what he's hearing. I, I fully acknowledge his credentials and respect his expertise, but um, uh, uh, had questions, you know, some of the results. The, the notion that, that these creatures could somehow acquire a form of pidgin English <laughs> is yeah. just beyond comprehension. Yeah. I mean, just imagine yourself being dropped in a foreign country you're not allowed to make any direct contact. You're not allowed to have any two-way conversations. You can only listen to, uh, you know, the occasional utterance or someone calling for their children to come in for dinner or something like that. And from that, you're going to generate a lexicon of, of, uh, of foreign words that you're going to incorporate into your own articulate language. I mean, it just it, it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And uh, and then, you know, I, I wondered, um, I, well, I've always wondered, I mean, I've, I've had, for example, natives tell me, Native Americans tell me that these creatures can speak their language. Mm -hmm. For example, here, I'm interacting with Shoshone and Bannock, and they say, oh, yeah, they speak Shoshone. They, I, they speak our language. And I'm thinking, well, again, how? How is that possible? Right. And and then Scott Nelson said something that really struck me. You add to that the fact that he hears certain words like food, food, you know, and and it, so he, he's interpreting that as the English word food. But when he played his recordings to one of his uh, fellow cryptologists, cryptolinguists rather, yeah. who was Japanese, what did he hear? He heard. Japanese homologues. He right. heard words that were as if it had picked up Japanese pigeon, you know, uh, terms. So here, so, yeah. I mean, so that to me was the answer. You hear what you are familiar with. It's almost like an auditory Rorschach, like you're hearing right. the, the noises and you're own perceptions interface with that and fill in all the gaps right which is what you get visually with these bigfoot counters a lot of times too in the dark people right oh sure things and then they you know boom they yeah fill in the so gap. whether it has a, a uh you know a, a human-like nose 
or one that's more upturned and flared like a an ape or a uh, you know other uh, other ethnicity, not so uh, yeah. narrow and slender. Um, so anyway, my point is simply, I you know I I I I don't mean to put Scott on the spot, but I did put him on the spot, and I I pressed him and I said, hey, I I want to get some of this published. I want or I want to I want to have the opportunity to have your conclusions evaluated by others disinterested um, reviewers and see that's when I do the relic hominoid inquiry when I get a submission I don't send it to to sympathetic reviewers you know just to pro forma go through the motions of having a peer review right. I look for you know if it's if it ha if it features tracking methods I look for uh, the most recent publications in animal tracking and tele telemetry and who's publishing and where's the research being done. And, and I, you know, make cold calls or, or emails and I've yet to be turned. Well, I was turned down once and it was legitimate. He, he, <laughs> he, he sincerely said, look, this is really interesting, but I've got five papers I have to get reviewed uh, before the end of the month. I cannot take another one on. Uh, but otherwise, it's given me the opportunity to, in, to network with other academics who otherwise would not probably taken a role or an active participation mm. uh, in this subject matter. But as a reviewer or a commentator, they will, you know, offer that professional courtesy. And uh, so I said, this would be a great opportunity to do that. And he won't do it. Mm. Uh, he's declined entirely. And, uh, you know, I, I and so... So anyway, like I said, these are not definitive declarations or or um, uh, refutations or anything like that. I'm 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 rather agnostic on the subject. I find it of, of the Sierra Sounds. I find it fascinating. I know Ron very personally and have interacted with him in in uh, in, in numerous conferences where we've mm -hmm. uh, both appeared or spoken. And, uh, uh, you know, count him as a friend, have a great deal of respect for him. I, I think that, again, some of his ideas about quantum physics, uh, the application of quantum physics to the macro world are, are a little um, um, unfounded, put it that way, unfounded. But, uh, we, you know, we disagree on, on those, those points, those tenets of his, of his argument. But... Um, but you know, you asked yeah. for what I thought. Those are right. those those are the thoughts that are bouncing around like pong yeah. balls in a, in a pinball machine or pinballs in a pinball machine yeah. as I try to grapple with the various uh, experiences associated it's, with it. It's amazing. There's so much that comes from so many different angles. You would think that there's a lack of evidence, but where you're sitting in your chair, you're inundated with evidence, and it's a matter of sifting through for that. Oh, it is um, that golden egg that that yeah. smoking gun actually, yeah. Which speaks to like the DNA stuff. What do you think of the DNA analysis and a lot of it that comes back? It, it seems to be like, man, we've got something. We've got all this collab uh, collaborative evidence with tracks and everything, but then the DNA stuff seems to come back human. Do you think that's from contamination or maybe? Well, a, that, a, a yeah, here's, connection. Here's the thing on that, and 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 I and I must preface it by saying that unfortunately the water has been muddied by uh by you know the work of uh, of melba ketchum and and yeah, to a yeah. degree by brian sykes as well 
I remember uh, when all that I was mean, going uh, on. Perhaps not, not in the same um, spirit as as Milba Ketchum, but nevertheless, it has muddied the water, and I'll explain why. But but setting those two aside for the moment, yeah, we get these repeated instances where if if the specimen isn't immediately identified as some other animal, is basically what happened with Brian Sykes. Um, we're left with a, a more often than not, if DNA is recovered, you're right, it comes back as human. And it's explained as either being contaminant from handling the specimen, or it's simply misidentified human. I mean, humans shed hair. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they find a hair strand that's fallen off from somebody and it persists. Hair persists in the environment for a long time. It's quite durable. But the third option, the third possibility that has been glossed over, and I've discussed this at length with numerous geneticists, is um, if, as we were talking about earlier, this question of pongid hominid, you know, or hominin, if it is a hominin, then it's more closely related to us than any other living species of primate. And as such, you know, with the acknowledgement that chimps are, depending on which paper you read, 94 to 98% identical to us, this could be 99% identical to us or, or 0.5% identical to us. Right. In which case, if you're doing a cursory uh, sample with a marker that's generally used to separate different classes of, of mammals, you know, um, then are you doing enough to find those, you know, uh, one out of a thousand or one out of a, uh, or, or one out of 500 uh, bases that, uh, and they're not evenly distributed throughout the genome. Right. There, there'll be lots of stretches of DNA that is absolutely identical to us. Right. Just as chimpanzees. I mean, you can turn this around and instead of saying, well, chimps and, you know, and humans share 99% of their DNA. I mean, that, that sounds fine, but you, you, you know, the implication is we are 98% chimpanzee. The difference is in the 2%. Right. <laughs> that makes all the difference in the world. You know, it can be one, one duplicated gene that has given us our tremendous brain size increase and in intelligence and the ability to have uh, communicate by articulate speech, you know, and just that, one gene. And that, um, and that one gene sometimes isn't enough to stop that hunter from picking it up and holding the tissue sample right in right. his hand before he puts right. it in the bag. That's and, right. And, oh yeah. Contaminating Absolutely. it all wrong. So, right. <laughs> so, so my question has been, uh, to these geneticists is, you know, are we doing enough? Because most of the samples that have been tested aren't part of big studies. They are uh, at least big, reliable studies. They're, they're, you know, underwritten by a documentary production company. And so they do a very quick cursory um, sample and they plug it into the gene bank and the data set kicks out the closest or the the first match, which is human. There is no sample of Sasquatch or unknown North American primate in in the gene bank. Right. And so, yeah, one of the one of the uh, geneticists I talked to said, "Oh, you're absolutely right." He said, "If I were doing it, if I had the time and the resources, I would do the entire mitochondrial genome and probably a dozen or so nuclear genes before drawing any conclusions whatsoever." Well, that's 
that starts to get pricey and, and finding the lab that will do it. You know, I've reached out, um, not that uh, Todd Disitel hasn't done some great work, but I wanted to have more than just Todd's voice on this subject. Yeah. And I've reached out to a number of labs, same kind of thing. You know, I went to the literature, who's publishing on, on grade eight DNA. And I found that, you know, for example, I've found several examples, but there was a great one, great collaborative effort that was focused on some faculty, I think it was the University of Washington. And I reached out to a couple of them and explained my situation and concerns. And they said, well, this is fascinating, but we wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole, basically, figuratively speaking, paraphrasing. Yeah. They, you know, in this, in this day and age where NSF, the rate of successful grant award uh, is about 6%, you, you know, you're, you're the functioning of, especially a lab like that, it, it can't run without the reagents and without the uh, consumables, the Eppendorf tubes and the pipetters and the tips right. and all the other stuff, you know, um, they cannot uh, uh, risk anything that might uh, jeopardize their funding stream. Right, and right. so the good labs, uh, they wouldn't, uh, you know, and a, and a student's not going to take on the project because it's academic suicide. You know, right. you, you couldn't, I mean, I would never let one of my students study the Bigfoot research or do Bigfoot research. I mean, they could do something. I always encourage students who contact me and youngsters, if you want to do what I'm doing, then what you need to do is you, you pick out an area of science that you have can develop, a, have or develop a passion for, whether that's fiber analysis, whether that's fingerprinting, whether that's bioacoustics or DNA or tracking or wildlife biology or whatever, then you become one of the experts. You, you make a mark in your field and establish your credibility and reputation and get tenure <laughs> if you're in academia and, uh, or some other form of job security. And then you turn your, your attentions to the subject matter from that position of expertise. Right. Um, but otherwise, I mean, because I've seen it. I've seen the examples where people thought they could uh, navigate those uh, those waters. And, you know. Yeah. And a lot of those organizations that are equipped in order to do the type of testing that would put a nail in the coffin on this topic they're under so much scrutiny for the funding and they're going under accreditation processes and all that kind of stuff to where it's just not even worth the risk as a distraction in order to bring something like this into the lab. Everything is getting looked at so closely. It's just like, they don't have the time. Uh, Yeah. And even if, even if a a reviewer or a critic, you know, isn't uh, blatant enough to directly criticize see what happened to me here was it reached a point where the front-on assault was was you know backfiring? It was there was there was uh, repercussions for that kind of behavior. So what was the the next iteration was to ignore it, and by ignoring it, not only just not reacting to it, they would literally. I mean, in one of my review cycles, the committee literally ignored anything I had published. Um, regarding this topic, any any scientific presentations at, at professional meetings, any publication, any book, and then they hold up my record where they have 
dropped out all these things and said, well, look how how spotty his productivity is. Yeah. He hasn't been generating the kind of research that, you know, someone seeking full professorship should should have demonstrated. Right. And so, you know, then I have to push back and say, well, you know, look at him. <laughs> I'm doing all this other work. <laughs> well, yeah, doing all this stuff. And and it's these are peer reviewed journals, articles. These are this book was was reviewed by probably more people than would review a, ma- a, a journal manuscript before right. it, the uh, publishers took it to press. Right. And uh, and I had sent it out for comments to numerous people, you know, beforehand. And anyway, right. uh, it's just it's so ridiculous. Uh, but I, I would never, um, you know, I would never encourage a student to, to go down that path. And I can understand how how even established scientists. I mean, you look at the pattern. Most of the academics who have uh, turned their attention to the subject have done so upon reaching retirement. Right. And then unfortunately, to more often than not, they've been taken from us unexpectedly and prematurely and uh, haven't been able to make the, you know, Grover had pancreatic cancer and Dara Swindler died um, just unexpectedly, just as we were going to start collaborating on a number of projects. I mean, I was, I was, I don't want to say naive, I was um, idealistic enough to jump into the deep end of the pool before I even had tenure. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just about cost me my career as a result. So I, I can uh, I can empathize with uh, the uh, poor treatment that uh, Dr. Krantz received. Right. As a result. Well, hopefully those times are changing in the younger generation with the uh, modern changes with like shows like this and being able to do interviews and the amount of uh, coverage that you're able to get with your books and appearances on tv and going to conventions hopefully will create sort of an umbrella or like an icebreaker for the new generation to come behind and sort of feel a little bit more brave to approach these topics well Uh, i have seen signs of that but the qualifier is it will take as uh as kuhn said in his uh uh, structure of scientific revolutions and the, the the fellow who coined the term paradigm shift, he said very astutely that it it may take an entire generation to pass, completely pass. See, that's the thing. It's not just the new generation coming up, but this generation now, which are the uh, gatekeepers, they're the department chairs, the symposium organizers, the society presidents, etc. You know, as long as they're there, then they still have their thumb on what is considered orthodox and what is not. They so keep the I, I predict it's another another 10 years before um, the signs I've seen of, of upcoming young academics uh, who show a, a, a fervor for, uh, you know, and curiosity for this subject before they can freely pursue it. And by that time, they'll have their tenure, you know, between five right. and 10 years, those that I've interacted with will have tenure and the gatekeepers will have turned over and some fresh blood hopefully will be uh, taking up those positions. But it's sad, you know, it's really, it really is, is a sad commentary to, uh, I mean, our, 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 our national political landscape is, is so ridiculous. I mean, it's like someone said, he felt like he was in the matrix yeah. You know, or my, my wife says, I just, I wake up and I, and I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. 
It just doesn't seem real. And but that same kind of to see that same kind of stuff go on in academia, yes, uh, even more uh, extreme in some instances, personalities and uh, dogmas and ideologies and agendas. Um, it just, I, you know, I, I, I resist the tendency to become cynical. I saw it in Dr. Krantz. You can see it in his writings. Just read, read his last chapter on the scientific establishment. And I remember when I read that, I thought, oh, it's a shame that he ends with such sour grapes, you know, this, this really engaging book. Yeah. And now I know where I can see where it was coming from. You know, you reach a point where it's just like, what, uh, you know, it, why the, the, uh, the, uh, purity, the, uh, the, uh, what's the word I'm after a purity, I guess is the best way. Just that, that pure, uh, scientific curiosity, that spirit of discovery and exploration is gone. It's just squashed by the politics of wrangling for, for dollars and jockeying for, for, uh, position and, uh, right. Egos and so anyway, it's all become about the special wow. special interests and the self preservation anymore. You know, everybody yeah. is very scared of uh, the call out culture and the. That's all. Oh, that's right. All the more so, so. Yeah. Anything that comes up is going to stick forever now, and so it uh, takes a brave yeah. a brave generation, like you said, maybe to come come up next to face it, or some sort of uh, you know some evidence to or come some, forward. Some, or, some breakthrough, yeah. Some breakthrough. Maybe the technology will catch up, you know, uh, right. with the camera technology and night vision and things like that. Yeah, yeah. That's the that that and and there are some interesting uh, possibilities on the on the horizon that uh, you know I hope to take part in and, and help push if I if I make can make one last contribution, you know, yeah, uh, is to push some of those initiatives forward and get people involved with them. Um, that'll be great. Definitely. Uh, Dr. Meldrum, if people want to find you like online or find your books, tell everybody where they can look you up or maybe contact you or find that information. Right. Well, I'm, I'm usually res quite responsive to email. My email is uh, M-E-L-D-D at ISU.edu. Uh, you can find me if, if you don't remember that, just, you know, Google Idaho State University and you can find me quite easily. Um, my, uh, uh, the other way to kind of follow uh, developments and things of interest and appearances and so forth on my webpage, which is under my full name, Don Jeffrey Meldrum. Um, and as far as books and publications, most are available on Amazon, but, but I'd also direct you to the, uh, a publisher of my field guides, uh, Paradise K. Hmm. That's K uh, with a C-A-Y, Paradise K which is out of Northern California. And they have uh, expanded a tremendous line, a very fun and engaging line of, uh, of Bigfoot items. Um, everything from uh, very good books to entertaining books to, to uh, fridge magnets and uh, bottle openers and all kinds of metal art and so forth. It's, it's really quite fun. Um, and if you just look up them at uh, parakeet.com, my book and field guides, as I said, and field notebook, a more recent edition, are all listed there as well. Wonderful. And I, I just had somebody in the chat say that they'll go ahead and add those links and everything. And I'll go back uh, after the end right. of the show and make sure and update the description box so that anybody watching or listening this can go 
uh, find all those links and order the books and check it out. I've been a big fan of yours for the longest time and read your books. And every time I go up camping, I think some of your work, uh, Dr. Meldrum, has affected every camping experience I've ever been on <laughs> since I was pretty little. So uh, you have affected me. I'm here doing this show, talking to you because of uh, that loop of the, the small world that we live in, of how yeah. you've made an impression on me. Uh, the research that you've done and the courage that you've had to step forward with your career on the line and jump in the deep end, uh, uh, <laughs> making it safer for other people to do the same to explain. So I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart from for coming on the show and answering all these questions and tough ones. And and I hope to have you back. And uh, if anything uh, cool goes on in, in the field research, I sure. would love to have you back and pick your brain about it a little bit. That'd so, be great. Uh, would love that. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Meldrum and uh, everybody for joining us. Uh, thanks for joining us in the chat and we will see you guys in the next one. Okay. Take care.